So with Advent kicking off, I wanted to, of course, focus on that theme of Advent, Christ and his birth. And the particular focus that I want to have today, maybe you even looked at the passages, we're going to read through this whole story of, of Christ's birth. Uh, what I really want us to focus on is just the wonder, the awesome wonder of what took place when Christ was born, when he came to this earth. And I think it can be easy, and I'm sort of even speaking for myself here, uh, particularly for those of us who maybe grew up in the church, and, and we've heard this story, we've read this story, you know, how many times? You, you couldn't even count it, you know, thousands upon thousands of times that you've read it or pondered it or thought of it or, or more than that. And I think what can often happen is we're sort of, we sort of then become dulled to the wonder of what took place. It's just sort of, we've heard it a million times and we just sort of take it for granted and it just sort of becomes almost as if it's sort of commonplace in our mind. It's just, we take it for granted. Yeah, we know the story and that's great and that's wonderful. Rather than sort of hearing this story afresh, almost in a sense, putting ourselves in, you know, Mary's shoes or pretending like we were there when it first happened, when it took place, or pretending we're one of the shepherds and just sort of being gripped by the awesome wonder of what really took place. Don't hear this like you've heard it a million times and you take it for granted. But as we read through this, I want us to really hear it afresh and really get a sense for the awesome wonder of what actually happened. Whether we think of sort of the big picture of what was taking place, whether we're even just looking at every little detail, and we're sort of going to take a look at both of those, in every sense, there's just an awesome wonder about all that's going on here. If we look at this big picture, right, we sort of have to set the context. What, what is sort of the setting into which Christ comes? Uh, and we really see that in, in our first passage that we're going to look at here before we even look at Christ, the story of his birth, and work our way through it. I want to turn first to Romans 3.23, just to get a, give us a sense of sort of the big picture of all that's going on here and get a sense of the wonder of this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I've talked about this, preached on this passage not, not too long ago. And I, I, you may remember I've, I've said that probably a better translation is for all have sinned and fall short of the approval of God. The word there can mean glory, and that's certainly a typical translation. But it can also mean opinion, particularly with the connotation of a good opinion, which can sort of have the sense of approval. And sort of contextually, I'd say that that seems to fit a little bit better. For all have sinned and fall short of the approval of God. This is sort of the reality, right? If we think before Christ came or, or think of if Christ hadn't come, what, what's sort of the state of things? What is the state of things into which he comes? Here's man. We've sinned. We've rebelled. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's approval. We're all sinners, and we justly deserve the very wrath of God. We've committed crimes against God, and we must pay. And that's sort of the state of things. And if God hadn't come, if Christ hadn't come and gone to that cross and made atonement for our sin, well, then... That's, that's just where we stand. Under his wrath, we deserve his punishment, the fires of hell for all of eternity. And that's sort of not some great wondrous, wondrous news, but it's the truth of the matter. That's sort of the bad news that comes before the good news of the gospel and Christ and what he's done for us. And so this is sort of the state of things. Apart from Christ, we don't have hope. We're stuck in our sin. We can't save ourselves. We have no way out. We've sinned against the Lord and, and we must pay for it. And that's sort of the state of things. And then, of course, in that situation, then Christ comes. And I mean, really think about this. Here is God the Son, God Most High, who comes down to this earth, becomes one of us, to go and ultimately head to a cross where he's going to be put to death, crucified, have the weight of our sin upon him. He'll stand in our place, the place of sinful man, have the wrath of God poured out upon him 
so that ultimately we wouldn't have to have that poured out upon ourselves, so that if we repent, we believe in him, then we're forgiven. He's, he's paid for our sin. In full, it's paid for, done. And we are forgiven, and we receive everlasting life. And to think that God would come and do that for us, that he would come, become one of us, become a, a man, right? Christ, God the Son, become a man, and take our place and rescue us at great cost to himself. It's just sort of mind-blowing. And then even to, to, to think about this, right, let's read Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right, it's not while we were oh so perfectly faithful to the Lord, he did then something nice for us. It's no, while we were wicked, wretched creatures, steeped in our sin, enemies of God, yet he still had such wondrous love for us that he came and he died for us. That's the reality. Even when we were God's enemies, steeped in our sin and our rebellion, yet he persisted in wondrous love for us, came here and even died for us to rescue us and make a way for us to be restored back to him. And there should just be a sense of our minds being blown over that, right? We, we've, we've heard that a million times. Okay, yep, we understand the gospel, but, but all too often we sort of take it for granted rather than really sort of hearing it afresh like it's for the first time and saying, you know, that's just, that's just too wonderful to be true, and yet it is true, right? God didn't just leave us in our sin, yet in love he came, and at great cost to himself he rescued us. That should just blow our minds. There should be this sense of awesome wonder that, that he did that for us, that he is that kind of wondrous love, that he is that loving, that merciful, that gracious, that powerful as well to be able to deal with the problem of our sin and just sort of to, to, to be in awe of it and just sort of have this sense of awesome wonder just to be amazed that God would do that. But, but not just looking at the big picture, which is, of course, central and we don't want to lose sight of, but even if you look at the story of Christ and his birth, just every little detail of it, there's just this sense of, of awe and wonder about every little bit of it. It's just sort of saturated with amazing, wondrous things that as we come to it, and again, I want us to sort of read this afresh, not like you've read it a thousand times, but read it like it's for the first time or, or put yourselves in the shoes of the people who are right there seeing it. And we realize it just sort of is saturated with just amazing, wondrous, awesome things. And I want us to have a sense of wonder this Advent season. I don't want us to just sort of have this feeling of like, oh, another Advent, yay, and we get to celebrate Christ and his birth, and that's good. But we just sort of take it for granted. Again, I want us to, to really get a sense for what took place and just have that awestruck sense of just awe and wonder over every bit of it. And so let's take a look now at the story of Christ's birth. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 1. We're even going to read through, in a sense, sort of the whole birth narrative here. So Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 26. And this is the Annunciation to Mary. And we're going to read through to verse 38. Here's what it says. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I mean, already at the outset, there should be this sense of just wonder and amazement. I mean, anytime an angel just sort of shows up, again, put yourself in Mary's shoes. There's got to be this sense of awe and shock. Uh, typically, part of the response is the sense of just great fear. What's going on here? Is it going to go well for me or not so well? What's going on? But there should be a sense of awe. Again, put yourself in her shoes. 
And in fact, we see her response. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Right, so at this point, if you're sort of putting yourselves in Mary's shoes or just pretending you were sort of there, a little fly on the wall, and you get to see all this going on, there's already this sense of awe and wonder over an angel has shown up. He's shown up on scene. But again, there's more to it than that. Just think of the content of what's being said here. What's going on here? Or put yourself in, in Mary's shoes, right? Okay, what does he say here? This Messiah that, that not just for Mary, but think of her, her you know, father and her father's father. Generation after generation of all of the people of Israel, all the people of Judah, they have been waiting for this Messiah to finally show up again. For, for generations upon generations, just sort of this yearning for it and to find out finally now it's going to happen, right? That's what's being said here. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants uh, forever. His kingdom will never end, right? This is clearly saying he's the Messiah. He's finally here. He's finally arrived. And of course, it, it's more than that. It's not just that. That's amazing enough that you'd sort of be having your mind blown like, here's the Messiah. He's finally arrived. And if you're married, thinking like, and, and I'm the one who's to bear this child would blow your mind a little bit more. Uh, but it's not just that. This isn't just sort of some regular old human Messiah. But in fact, this is the Son of the Most High, as it says in verse 32. This is God the Son himself who's going to go and become a human being as the Messiah. And of course, he's coming to bring about deliverance and salvation from sin. And again, this is just sort of like too much to, to even comprehend and fathom. You'd just sort of be dumbfounded. What, what, how can you even respond? What would you say? You just sort of wouldn't even be able to take it all in. It's just sort of, it would be too much. That's how awestruck you would be. There'd just be the sense of great wonder that, that this is all taking place and you just sort of marvel at it. And indeed, you might be a little bit perplexed as Mary was. And she says, how, how will this be? You know, she's just sort of thinking practically like, um, I'm a virgin. How's this supposed to work? So how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So again, even this further sense of amazement, you're telling me I'm going to conceive and, uh, you know, it, it's going to be the Messiah. And it's in fact, God, the son, he's coming to, to save his people. And then again, how does this work? I'm a virgin. Well, it's going to be the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Your conception will be in the power of the Holy Spirit. And just sort of, how do you even process that? How do you take it all in? Who could, who could even fathom that? Who could imagine all of that taking place? And yet, this is what's happening. And again, it's easy to sort of hear this, like, as I've mentioned before, like you've heard it a dozen, a thousand, a million other times, because probably most of us have. And you just sort of take it for granted, but sort of hear it again like you're Mary and just sort of be awestruck. And say, this is just such a sense of amazing wonder in regard to what's going on here. This moment that, that is changing the course of history and, and, and to think that God would become one of us 
and, uh, and then not just become one of us, but ultimately he's going to go and, and save uh, all who had trusted him by heading to a cross and making atonement for sin and just sort of having your mind utterly blown by all of that and just being amazed. But let's continue on in the story, and we're still in Luke here, but now we're in chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 21, and so the story continues. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And even this it sort of seems like quite a lowly birth, right? You know, if you're going to be born, uh, probably your choice way of having a birth would not be in and amongst all of the animals. You'd probably think, I'd like a hospital. It's going to be nice and clean. You know, maybe drugs for managing the pain, all that stuff. Not sort of in and amongst the animals. That's where it's going to take place. And when you have this baby, you'd probably be thinking, this is a newborn. I'd like some clean conditions for where I can lay this baby. Not in a feeding trough, a manger, which is what takes place. And yet this sort of a sense of wonder, even in that which is sort of what might at first seem like the opposite of, of what is awesome and wondrous. It's sort of lowly. And yet there's a sense of wonder in that it's so unexpected. Again, understanding what we already understand. Well, this is God the Son. And it's the Messiah, and he's coming here. He's become one of us, and he's here to do this wondrous thing to, to, save, uh, to save mankind, all who would trust in him, to bring about salvation for, for the Lord's people. And you'd sort of expect, wouldn't his birth have a little bit more fanfare? You know, I mean, if this is God himself who's coming and being born, shouldn't, like, the whole world know about it? And this is just going to be a big party and parades and everyone celebrating. That would sort of seem to be fitting, right? That would seem appropriate. And yet it's basically the complete opposite. And there's sort of a sense of wonder about that. And I'd say there's reason for it being the complete opposite. There will be a time when Christ will come and he will come in great power and glory and, and might and majesty. And that will be when he returns, because when he returns, his returning is going to be all about him ruling and reigning in great power and glory and majesty. The way he comes, in a sense, sort of speaks to what his coming is all about. And this first coming that, that I just spoke of is when he returns, his second coming. But his first coming was, in fact, all about humbling himself. He came, ultimately, to humble himself to the point of death, and, in fact, death on a cross. Sort of the lowest imaginable place or death you could imagine is hanging on a cross, and, and that's what took place. And so the way in which he comes sort of speaks to what his coming is all about. And so if his coming is all about humbling himself, then he's going to come, and indeed he did, in a humble and low way. And so there's just a sense of wonder that, that here's God, and he arrives on scene, becomes a, a human being, and yet it's sort of like, you know, in and amongst the animals, lying in a manger, and just a sense of, of awe and wonder over the lowliness of that. Uh, but again, let's continue, and, and let's read on. This is verse 8 now. And so we get to the shepherds, right, and the angels. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
Again, even as we go through here, just looking at all of the details here, every little bit that just sort of is, again, is saturated with just sort of all these awesome and wondrous things. Again, put yourself in the shoes of these shepherds, and you're just sort of like hanging out, keeping watch over your flocks. You sort of figure it's just going to be a regular old night, no big deal, just like every other one. Make sure the flocks are safe, they're doing their thing, you know, all protected. And then all of a sudden, boom, an angel shows up. And the glory of the Lord is shining all around. And, you know, that's amazing. There should be a sense of awe and wonder over that. And undoubtedly, that was sort of the response. They would have been shocked and in awe, uh, had a sense of wonder. They would have been terrified as well. Again, thinking, is this, is this, does this mean good for us or does this mean bad? And a sense of, of, of fear in that awe and wonder as well. But again, I think all too often we just sort of hear this and it's sort of like, oh, here's that cool part of the story where we get the shepherds and the angels. Instead of really having a sense of what it was really like and just having this sense of great amazement over what took place. This, this angel shows up and just the glory of the Lord is shining all around and we should just be amazed at what's taking place here. Right? An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Again, think of being a shepherd, and here you are, and again, you and, and your forefathers before you, generation upon generation, <clears throat> you've been waiting for this moment, longing for this moment, for the Messiah to come and, and finally bring about that long-awaited deliverance. Now, admittedly, they're probably thinking in more sort of political terms of, we got to get rid of these Romans, we need our Messiah to come, deliver us from the Romans, then everything will be great. Probably that would have been their perspective. But nonetheless, they've been waiting for this Messiah to show up, and finally, right, this angel appears and says, it's happened. The Messiah is here. And I would say here when it says he is the Messiah, the Lord, I would say the idea there behind Lord is not just so much, well, Lord meaning master or sir, sort of in that general way, but rather Lord in the sense of making reference to God himself, Yahweh. That, that, that's what's being said there. That, that here is the Messiah, it's God himself, and he has come to save. That's what it says. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. Again, just think of the wonder of this. Finally, the Messiah has shown up. It's God himself, and he's come to save, to bring about a wondrous salvation and deliverance far greater than probably they even expected or were thinking of. True salvation, deliverance from sin. And again, think of just the awesome wonder of this. And so we read on, verse 12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, just get a sense of that on wonder again. Now it's not just one angel, but just this great company of the heavenly hosts are there and they're, they're praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, just Imagine being there. Just imagine seeing that take place and just, you know, your jaw would be hitting the floor. You'd just be so amazed. There'd just be the sense of great, awesome wonder over what's taking place. And you'd probably be thinking, I got to go check this thing out. I got to go check out this, this, this baby that's been born. As we were told, we'll find this baby wrapped in cloths and, and lying in a manger. I, I want to talk here a little bit before we go on with this, this story of, of the shepherds. I want to talk about what's going on here in verse 14, what the angels are saying here. Glory to God 
in the highest heaven. Glory to God in the highest is a little more literal, but, but there, that's a good translation. That's certainly what's in view there is heaven when it's speaking of in the highest. And I'd say here, the sense is sort of, may there be glory and praise unto God, certainly in heaven in the sense of the angels praising and glorifying God. But I'd say they'd have more than just that in view. I'd say it's sort of the picture of mankind glorifying, praising God so loudly and wondrously that it sort of resounds up into the heavens and the angels are joining in and it's like all of creation is just glorifying and praising God. And so they're saying, may that take place. And also, may also on earth, may there be peace to those on whom his favor rests. That is, for those who are truly his people who stand in his favor, may there be peace for them. But I'd say more than it just being a statement of, though this is present, may there be glory and praise unto God and may there be peace on earth for God's true people, right? It, it's also a statement of, indeed, these things are exactly what's happening and taking place in, in what, what is happening in this moment. Christ in his birth is all about God being glorified and all about peace on earth for those on whom his favor rests. That, that's in a sense, it's not just may these things be the case, though that's present, uh, that's certainly part of what's being said, but it's saying what's taking place is, is in fact thoroughly all about these things taking place. So the birth of Christ is all about there being glory and praise unto God, right? In God carrying out this wondrous act of salvation, which is thoroughly in view in the birth of Christ, him coming to this earth and being born, always in view is, is the cross and his resurrection. And what this is all about is God's glory. It's all about God showing and acting in his wondrous love and grace, ultimately to the praise of his great glorious grace. Ultimately, it's all for his glory. And not only that, again, what's taking place is all about bringing about peace on earth for his chosen ones, for his people, for those who would repent and trust in him where sin brought the opposite of peace. There was peace and wholeness in the Garden of Eden, but then sin happened, and that, that shattered that peace and wholeness in that relationship between God and man, and, and now we became enemies of God, and yet through Christ, through his coming, and ultimately what he came to do, he came ultimately by going to the cross to bring peace on earth. And so the angels here, what they're saying is really speaking to what this birth of this child is all about. Glory unto God and peace for men. But then reading on, <clears throat> verse 15, says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Right? You can imagine, this, you know, the angels show up, they tell them about this wondrous thing, and hey, here's this sign, you'll find a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger. And the response is, hey, we gotta, we got to go check this out. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened, that's, that the Lord has told us about. Let's go check it out. And indeed they do. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Right? All those who hear this sort of this response of amazement. How can you not be amazed? How can you not be sort of in awe and wonder over all that's being said, all that's taking place, what God is doing here? There's just a sense of great amazement and wonder over it. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. 
So again, we continue to just see in every bit of this story just these amazing and wondrous acts. Every part of this story is just sort of amazing and wondrous and and just sort of awe-inspiring. And it doesn't end here. We're going to go to Matthew where we see the Magi, Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 all the way through to 23. Now here I realize this is sort of a little bit later uh, by the time the Magi are showing up, and not that we know exactly how old Jesus was, but, you know, maybe he's around a year old or so. So you might say this isn't sort of right at Jesus's birth, but nonetheless, it's part of the birth story and birth narrative, even if it's a little bit later uh, in time, even if he's a year old or so. But let's read it. Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. And it could be when it rose or in the east. It just sort of grammatically there. It could could be referring to either. Some translations will go one way, some the other. I mean, ultimately, it doesn't radically change things. Um, So we saw a star when it rose or in the east and have come to worship him. Now, I want to speak to this a little bit. First of all, we should have this sense of wonder over this this wondrous, miraculous star that just shows up. And and this is clearly not some sort of a little bit more normal, even if rare, astronomical phenomenon. Uh, This is some sort of star that that moves and leads and and settles over where where the child is and directs them. This is not some sort of normal star in any sort of way. This this sort of miraculous star, and there should be this sense of on wonder over God doing this, that he causes the star to, to show up, to call attention uh, to the birth of, of his son that's going to change the course of history for mankind. Uh, and, but, but I want to speak to sort of the magi here. First of all, if you're wondering, who, who are these magi? What, what's their deal? Uh, these were sort of astrologer nobility. They were sort of upper class nobility, not, not royalty. They weren't kings, but, but nonetheless, uh, high class nobility who uh, certainly spent a good bit of time sort of looking up at the stars, uh, not necessarily astronomers in a scientific way as we might think of it, but, but certainly uh, a little bit more in line with astrology in a sense, with religious overtones and so forth, but sort of astrologer nobility from the East. Whether you want to say, well, is it, was it sort of the area of Babylon or more Persia? You know, we don't know exactly, but somewhere to the East. And, and if we sort of think of, well, how do these people even know what's going on? They see this star, but how do they even know this speaks to some king being born way over in Judea and, and, and so forth? Uh, I, I want to turn to Numbers, because I think this is, is probably part of what's going on here. Right, we have to, and we're going to turn to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. And you have to realize, think of, uh, this is to give us a little bit of a history, think of back to the time when the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into exile over into Babylon. Certainly they would have brought their Jewish faith with them, their religion with them, and the scriptures with them. And so in Babylon and Persia then sort of takes over after the Babylonian Empire, then you wind up with the Persian Empire and so forth. So certainly the Old Testament scriptures and Jewish faith would have been present and around in the East. So even if these magi here aren't Jews by any means, uh, that doesn't mean that, and if we think of sort of the ancient world, much of the ancient world was pretty syncretistic in a religious way where they were happy to have their religion, but then if they learned of some other religion to sort of like 
borrow parts of it and kind of like merge the two together into some sort of mingling of the two different faiths. That was pretty commonplace uh, in the ancient world. Uh, and so probably these are people who, because of this exile into Babylon of the southern kingdom of Judah, there's some familiarity with Jewish scriptures and prophecies and some bits of teaching. Doesn't mean that they were experts in Jewish law, but, but maybe they were familiar and might have been familiar, in fact, with Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. And this is uh, a prophetic word from Balaam, if you sort of think back to Numbers and, oh yeah, Balaam, I remember that guy. Uh, this was one of his prophecies, and here's what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the heads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. And this was always seen, thoroughly seen as a messianic prophecy. There are probably bits in some sense in which David might be viewed as an earlier semi-fulfillment of this. I would say that probably what's in view here in this prophecy as it's given is David is sort of a lesser fulfillment of it, but that its truest fulfillment is found in not David himself, the founder of the Davidic line, but the one who will come at the end, the Messiah himself. And so David might fulfill it on some level, but that's not the truest fulfillment, that really it is truly speaking of the Messiah himself. And, and that's how the Jews took it. They certainly took it by and large as a messianic prophecy referring to the Messiah himself. And so you can imagine that these magi, even though they're not Jews themselves, might have been familiar with bits and pieces of this. And they wind up reading this. And, and you know, then suddenly this star, this wondrous star seems to appear. And in the ancient world, it, it was not unusual to have the mindset that uh, the birth of some royalty would somehow be heralded by some sign in the heavens, some sort of star or, or something unusual. That was sort of common thought in the ancient world. So they'd already be thinking along those lines. Uh, and, and then they have this passage here, this prophetic word about this coming Messiah, and then boom, this star shows up. Now, I don't know. God may have appeared in a dream, had an angel appear to them to make it a little bit more clear and so forth. But I'd say Numbers 24, 17 is, is at least in part in, in the backdrop of their minds and, and gives them the sense of, oh, this, this must be what's going on. We see the star, and this is what it's all about. This, this king from the line of David, this Messiah who was to come, has finally been born, and we got to go and see this, this child that's been born, king of the Jews, and go and worship him. And so they do. So I just wanted to explain that if you sort of think, how do these magi even know? What, you know where, where do they get this? That, that, how do they even know that this is what's going on? Why would that even be in their minds? And that sort of explains that a little bit. But so going on, it says right here, I'll reread chapter, uh, verse 2 here. So they showed up, they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose or in the east and have come to worship him. Then verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, right? He's sort of thinking, uh, I'm king. I don't really want anyone to be a threat to my uh, kingly role here in, in this region here. So I'm not loving the idea of some sort of uh, threat to my authority, so he's disturbed. He doesn't like this idea. He wants to be the one with sole power as king. So when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go 
and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose, or in the east, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I want to pause here. These are certainly gifts that are uh, quite valuable. They're very valuable and, and would make reasonable gifts for any sort of king. You're going to go and visit this king, even though he's still a little baby, and you want to honor him, pay homage, and, and worship him. These are gifts that you would be likely to bring, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But I'd say there's more significance to them than just that, and, and probably more significance than the Magi themselves knew. They probably just are going bringing gifts that they think are good gifts for, for royalty, so hey, we'll bring these valuable gifts. Uh, but there's more meaning here, and again, there, there should be a sense of wonder to, to God sort of orchestrating this all out to, to sort of speak to this Messiah and what his son and, and what his ministry and time on this earth will be all about. And the gold certainly points to royalty in particular. You sort of think of gold, you think of, of royalty and kings, and speaks to, to the reality that this is indeed the messianic king. Uh, this is the Messiah. He is the king from the line of David. But as we think of frankincense, what's sort of the, the symbolism here? Well, frankincense was, was used uh, in certain sacrifices. We think of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Frankincense was used as part of that sacrificial system. Uh, and so this sort of speaks to Christ in his priestly role and as a sacrifice that he offers himself up as a sacrifice for atonement for sin. And so it speaks to that. And then as we think of myrrh, myrrh certainly had various uses, but one of its main uses was as a burial spice. Uh, and in fact, in the case of Jesus himself, it was used as a burial spice for him, sort of a, a burial perfume or spice uh, that would be put on the body. And that was the case for Jesus. And so again, here we, it's already sort of foreshadowing and speaking to what's going to happen to him, that, that he's going to die, that he will make atonement for sin, as we see with the frankincense, that pointing to that, but this will involve his death. And the myrrh speaks to that. And again, I'd say probably the Magi have no idea that that's sort of what's going on. They just bring these gifts. It's possible God could have, you know, called them to bring those gifts and made it known to them why they were doing so. But probably they're just showing up here bringing gifts that they see as appropriate for a king. And God is orchestrating this all in such a way that it really foreshadows what his coming is all about. Right? That he's king, that he serves that priestly role and function, will be a sacrifice for the atonement of sin, and ultimately will die. And again, there should be sort of this sense of awe and wonder that these gifts is such a richness of, of what's going on here. And even the Magi probably not knowing about it. And yet God is orchestrating all of this out, speaking to what is going on here with this wondrous birth of his son. So now going on, verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And again, you can just sort of read over that and like, no big deal. Yeah, okay, so they're warned and so they go a different way. But let's sort of slow down. And, and so they wind up having this dream. And in this dream, they're told, hey, don't go back to Herod. He has bad intentions here. Go home by a different route. And again, there should be a sense of wonder about, about whether this is an angel in a dream or however it's happening in this dream that God's just sort of, you know, working in a wondrous way to, to guide and direct and work this all out and protecting, of course, Christ himself in this case. And he's going to continue to do that dream and dream after dream as we consider, continue to read the story. So verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
Herod was certainly quite a, a brutal king and, and very paranoid. That, that's sort of something that characterized his, his rule, always paranoid of, in regard to threats to, to his authority and, and rule. And so, right, he's a threat here to, to Christ. And so what does the Lord do? Well, he sends an angel to, to Joseph in a dream and says, hey, you're to flee, right? Herod's going to be looking for this child to, to kill him, to put him to death. So go flee to Egypt. And again, we might just look at this and say, oh, this is just sort of practical and protecting Christ. And indeed, of course, yes, that's true. But there should be a sense of wonder. It's not like every day that you just sort of have a, a miraculous dream like this and God, you know, an angel shows up. God sends an angel to show up in your dream and guide and direct you and say, do this and do that. There should be a sense of awe wonder to all of this that, that takes place. But again, it continues. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Right again here, another wondrous dream, an angel of the Lord appearing in a dream to Joseph and guiding and directing him. Again, just sort of, we should have this sense of amazement at every bit of this story. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, again, right, again, this wondrous, miraculous dream that's guiding, directing, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So I kind of want to come back big picture. We sort of worked our way through this whole story from the Annunciation to Mary all the way here to, to the Magi and sort of the parts that follow after that, the flight to Egypt and then back and all of that. Um, and, and I want us to sort of come back big picture and, and really just have a sense of wonder over all of it. Whether we're looking at the little details as we went through the whole story, just sort of bit by bit, verse by verse, and even in just those little details of this story, there's just a sense of amazement at how God is working and operating and all of the miraculous bits and parts of the story. Uh, there's just a sense in which as we read it, and again, as we read it, hopefully uh, sort of anew, afresh, again, not like we've heard it a million times and just sort of taking it for granted, but kind of pretending you're right there, a fly on the wall, seeing it all, or maybe you're one of those shepherds as the angels show up, putting yourselves in, sort of in that situation and just reading this afresh and being amazed at all, every little bit of this story, we just see these wondrous, amazing, miraculous things. And I want us to have that response of just sort of being awestruck, just having that true amazement and wonder. And not just in the details, but again, as we sort of look at the big picture of what this is all about, that here we were, stuck in our sin, no way out, and yet God so wondrously loves us that he sent his son, that Christ, God the Son, came here, took on human flesh, became one of us, ultimately then headed to a cross, bearing our sin, taking our place, paying for it in full, that we might be forgiven, set free from our bondage to sin, have everlasting life, that God would do that for us while we were his filthy, wretched enemies. Yet he still in wondrous love did that for us. There should just be this sense of, of just amazement, just awe and wonder that God would do this. 
And this is what I want for us this, this Advent season. I don't want it to be just sort of another Advent season where we just sort of go through the motions. I think it can be easy to do that. You know, it's a time where you can easily focus on, you know, the gifts and the parties. I mean, maybe in COVID season, there's not so many parties and whatnot. But nonetheless, it's easy to focus on the superficial things that aren't intrinsically bad. They can be wonderful ways of celebrating, but all too often that sort of steals the focus. And the Advent season just sort of flies by, and all of a sudden it's Christmas Eve and Christmas. And I don't want that to be the case for us. I want it to be a season where we can just sort of slow down, take the time to ponder the wonder of what took place. And as we ponder this story, again, don't ponder it, don't sort of think on it the way maybe you have a million times before, just taking it for granted. Hear it all afresh anew. And as you do that, just have this real amazing sense of wonder over what took place. Be amazed. This is not some ordinary event. This is not just some regular happening that's no big deal. This is this wondrous, amazing, you could never have imagined it event that really took place and changed everything for us. And we should have a sense of wonder all through this season. And even after Christmas, it's not like Christmas comes and then, oh, you can forget about it and you don't have to be in on wonder over what God did. It should continue past the Advent season and Christmas. But especially in this season, I just want us to take the time to focus on Christ, focus on his birth, and really have that sense of awe and wonder. And as we have that awe and wonder, the natural overflow of that is just to praise God and thank him for the wondrous thing that he has done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are just amazed. We truly are in awe of you and what took place, what you did the whole idea of you, God the Son, coming here, becoming one of us, a virgin being with child, the Messiah, you, Lord God, coming to rescue us from our sin, even though we are these filthy, wretched, sinful creatures, it, blow, it just boggles the mind. It's too much to fathom, and yet it's true. We should not take it lightly. We should not think of it as just some other event or happening. It is a truly wondrous and awesome event that took place. And may we be gripped by that sense of amazement and awe and wonder. And as that happens, may we respond as we ought to with true praise and thanksgiving to you for that wondrous thing that you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen.